2: Welcome to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Irene Promo from the University of Michigan, and today I'll be in conversation with Professor Andrea Wright, author of the riveting new book, Between Dreams and Ghosts, Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil, which was published by Stanford University Press last, late last year in November 2021. Andrea Wright is Assistant Professor of Anthropology in Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at William & Mary. She received her PhD in Anthropology and History from the University of Michigan in 2015. Her research moves across various scales, from South Asia to the Arabian Peninsula, and more recently the United States, to explore how labor and energy production shape economies, geopolitical dynamics, and social inequalities, her work has appeared in journals such as Cultural Anthropology and the Journal of World History, and edited collections as well as public-facing media forums. Welcome, Professor Andrea, Wright. and it's it's so good to have you with us. Well,
1: thank you so much. It's such a joy to be here. Thank
2: you. Of course. So before we delve into your book and all that all it has to offer us, um, conceptually and empirically, I wonder if we could first get to know you a little bit more. So, would you mind telling us a few words about your personal background? What led you to become an anthropologist, come historian, um, working on the politics of oil and labor, particularly along this Gulf Indian migration corridor?
1: Well, thank you. Yeah. So, I um, I actually did my undergraduate studies also at the University of Michigan, and when I was there, I was um, I studied art history and anthropology, but I. I I didn't really um, know what I was interested in, but I had an opportunity to travel twice um, with a professor, um, Professor Spink, who uh, used to teach at Michigan, um, to go to Ajanta, which is in in India. And when I was there, I I realized that there's... caves there that I have Buddhist art that was the reason for traveling there. But, um, what I realized was I just really love talking to people and learning about their lives and, um, their daily practices. And so I became increasingly interested in cultural anthropology. And then I, um, did a master's at the university of Chicago where I had the opportunity to take, um, a few classes on anthropology and history. So that, um, I guess really inspired my love of this interdisciplinary, um, these interdisciplinary practices. And, um, I was excited to go to Michigan then to for the joint anthropology and history degree. So that's kind of my intellectual trajectory, all while um, really being shaped by these, like this really early research opportunity to um, visit India, which was um, really fantastic. But um, and my interest, particularly in what this book is about, which is like Indian labor migration to the. Um, Oil fields in the Persian Gulf uh, began in 2006 when I was living in Lucknow um, and doing language study, Urdu language study there um, at the American Institute for Indian Studies. And I went to um, visit a friend of mine who who's living in Beirut um, during that time, and I had a long layover in Dubai. And at the time, I didn't know anything about Dubai. And so I, I didn't know what I would do. And I thought, well, I'll just go and um, take a taxi and go to the mall. And because there was, the malls were really popular. I think there was a new ski slope there or something. And so my Urdu teacher said, you need to go and see, see it. So I got into the line and I, you know, got in the taxi and um it, it was like very, it was kind of scarily expensive because my stipend at the time was, you know, calculated for Lucknow in India, which had a lower, um, was not as expensive as Dubai. Um, and I, I asked the taxi driver in Arabic if he could take me to the mall. And he was like, I don't speak Arabic. And I, I thought, well, Okay. So I asked in English and he he was like, Madam, I can't understand your English. And I'm like, okay. And so, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm becoming increasingly worried because the taxi, you know, meter's just ticking up and up. And so I asked again in Arabic and English. And finally I asked in Hindi and I was like, can you take me to the mall? And he was like, well, why do you speak Hindi? And I, I thought, oh, I live in Lucknow. And he he was surprised because he came from a, uh, a village close to Lucknow in Uttar Pradesh in India. And so we ended up, I ended up talking with him a lot and then meeting some of his friends and I ended up instead of going to the mall, spending the day talking with this group of taxi drivers who were all from near-ish to Lucknow and learning about their lives. And I, before that time, I hadn't been aware that so many people from India traveled to work in the Gulf. And, um, and in part, this is there was, of course, some really great scholarship on it coming out of India like by Nambir um, in the 90s, but... Um, you know, and this is before the time when some of the really influential work by um, uh, Andrew Gardner, City of Strangers or is Impossible Citizens had come out. So I was just really, um, like, really excited, like, in- interested. And um, when I went back to India after my um, trip to Beirut, I met some of the families of the people I met there, and I just became increasingly interested in how um, uh, these movements from India to the Middle East and back again, and that began my interest in this migration. Um, The specifically oil part of it, I think, was because of um, when I began my research, I was trying to um, work with uh, recruiting agencies, which are companies that work as intermediaries between companies that want to hire workers and workers looking for jobs. And the companies that first um, I was able to gain access to worked for the oil and gas industry, which is such a huge industry in the Gulf, um but also I mean I feel really so it both had to do with like structurally where I was able to gain access but also the oil industry because it has such a um like important role in the 20th century in um shaping parts of the Gulf states it felt um to be fortuitous that that was where I was able to gain access so that was um I guess a very brief bio or background and how it, I came to this
2: oh thank you thank you so much for that it's Yeah, the serendipitous kind of discoveries along the way, um, fieldwork. Yeah, it's just fascinating to hear. Um, So before we get into, you know, those hefty questions um, about the book itself, um, would you mind telling us maybe very, very briefly about how you came to write, you know, this book, Between Dreams and Ghosts, in terms of how its central ideas, which are simply fascinating about the poetics of labor migration, gift exchange and kinship relations and racialized labor hierarchies, how they came to interest you and develop over time? Was it, you know, these discoveries during fieldwork that, you know, did these kind of emerge then or was it later, you know, in a later stage of, um, writing up or returning again for a second and third time. Yeah. Right. Well, well thank
1: you. Um so, you know, the goal, I guess, of Between Dreams and Ghosts is to was to follow the process of migration from India um to the Middle East. And to really um think not just about how um government officials or um recruiting agents or oil company managers shape migration, but also how we can like think seriously about uh, laborers people who do things like carry heavy loads or build scaffolding um, how uh, how they also shape connections between India and the Middle East and so um, I, I began with um, ethnographic research in India and then in the United Arab Emirates um, and then subsequent like field visits um, so that was like from 2008 to 2011 early 2011 um, and then I've done subsequent visits as well as some research in Kuwait um, and I tried to follow migrants as they went um, from their villages in rural India to Mumbai, where they searched for jobs, and then to their job sites in the Gulf states, particularly in the United Arab Emirates, and then back again um, to their villages after their job contracts end, which is about one to two years. Um, And the emphasis is like on migration and the historical factors that shape the process and the experiences of migrants. Um, And when I was beginning my research, I actually thought I was going to look at um, how Indian Muslim men's religious uh, understandings change once they've uh, migrated to the Gulf, or if their religious practices and engagements change, and I asked, um, you know, I I began by asking um, people who were looking for jobs in India, but who had previously worked in the Gulf, I was asking these questions, and nobody wanted to talk to me about um, religion, and, you know, and I, in part, probably this is because I'm a white woman, and so they were, um, perhaps thought I wasn't interested, or it wasn't a topic that um, they wanted to share, really, people wanted to talk to me about their sisters and their daughters and their wives and their mothers. And they wanted to talk about the food and, you know, like that they ate at home or what they were going to buy for their families or do for their families after they traveled. And um, and so, in part, some of these structuring concepts that emerged in the book emerged um, through my conversations with both um, prospective migrants and migrants, as well as um, the other actors involved in migration. Um, government officials, oil company managers, recruiting agents, um, in order to understand um, how, I guess, like how oil projects are staffed and not to see them simply as a issue of like supply and demand, like there's a lot of um, labor in India and not enough jobs versus a lot of oil or wealth in the Gulf, but not enough um, labor, which is the story that I was often told when I began my research, that would be, well, of course, there's lots of Indians working in the Gulf because of these um, factors. But I, I really felt like that kind of framing um, lost a lot of structural inequalities in lived realities and also creates these, um, rhetorically produces economies of val- with systems of values that makes like oil expensive and labor cheap. And so instead, I wanted to see how all these actors destabilize um, and question uh, the the world today, and help shape labor migration.
2: Yeah, thank you, thank you for that. And that you you definitely do spend a lot of time in the book teasing each one of these themes that you mentioned in detail. Um, but in the first chapter of your book, it it provided this very neat, crucial kind of historical backdrop as to how we can even think about and understand what's going on. Um, in the first chapter of your book, which is titled Protecting Vulnerable Citizens, you take us through the colonial logics of labor m- mobility that continue to underpin present-day immigration regulations in India, most notably in the trope of um, the vulnerable Indian. Um, so could you tell us more about how post-colonial processes of labor migration um, are informed by, but also subvert, these colonial era forms of governmentality, uh, and if you might have anything to say about how governance practices, you know, during at least your time of field work and slightly before, how they've needed to change under the conditions and pressures of neoliberalization, neoliberal globalization.
1: Great. Well, um, thank you. So I think to begin with this, it's um, important to note that in India, if a man wants to emigrate to work in the... Um, in the Gulf, uh, the Gulf states, uh, he needs to, um, and he hasn't passed um, 10th class or gone through um, 10th grade. Um, he needs to get immigration permission um, from the government. Uh, and for women who haven't passed 10th class and who are under the age of 30, they're not and want to migrate to work in the Gulf. They're not legally able to do so. If they're over the age of 30 um, and they haven't passed 10th class, uh, they need permission government permission as well as permission from their husbands or fathers or um, oldest male kin. Um, And these migration regulations emerge in the um, 1800s when the British government is trying to regulate indentured labor. And the the concern at the time for the British government was that, um, or at least some uh, people, was that uh, slavery had been abolished and indentured labor is becoming the replacement for it. But slavery, um, but indentured labor is supposed to be free. And how do we know if indentured labor is free if people are um, signing indentured contracts in um, times of like famine or other um, socio-economic hardships, and they're not uh, the conditions are poor. And so the British government sets up a system called the Protector of Immigrants that basically. Um, that government officials ensure that workers have signed contracts of their own free will. And this creates, um, these laws also help create this infrastructure of moving labor so that um, India becomes the largest, um, uh, m- the most indentured workers are coming out of India than in the mid late 1800s. Um, and of course the indentured labor ends due to the work of Indian nationalists in the early 20th century. But we still have the, those laws continue to be on the books, and so in the post-colonial, after India becomes independent from Britain in 1947, we see that um, there's a, you know, adoption and modification of these British colonial laws, including laws regarding immigration regulation, um, and also by in the 1950s, the Gulf becomes a place where Indian workers are traveling to work on oil projects, um, and. So the immigration regulations change, and um, who needs immigration permission switches from being uh, all in all Indians who want to go and work abroad to specific Indians who are seen as being more vulnerable to having their um, or due to um, their education levels and who are going to certain countries where uh, the labor laws are per, are not as robust as in other countries. So these are these these colonial logics, but also these contemporary neoliberal policies of like um, hands-offness, they become ways to manage labor mobilities through differentiating some laborers as vulnerable. And this construction of difference informs the process of migration. And it also serves to generate additional revenues. So um, like historically, colonial labor mobilities increased profits to plantation owners and rested on a logic of dispossession as well as the commodification of labor and control of mobility and risk displacement by having contracts signed. And so today again these ideas of having vulnerable workers sign contracts the same policy of getting immigration regu- permission through signing a contract is not really about is is about um this not about as um, Improving conditions across the board, but rather uh, ensuring this idea of consent. Um, workers are gathering consent, and so I, I found this really interesting because, of course, many former former colonial states um, use colonial laws or logics in the government. So, so laws continue, get changed over time, and as well as there's these large international pressures to create certain laws. You know, either via economic policies or international aid. You know, things that are done through um, the World Trade Organization, the United Nations and such. And so, you know, government officials are forced to meet various standards. Um, and government officials would also have their own views of what the best governance practices are for India. Um, and in some work, like Ayaz um, Qureshi's work in Pakistan, she finds like how she looks at how the World Bank um, made um, government of- um, facilitated government officials seeing their work in new ways, but the worker, the government officials with whom I worked, really didn't see um, protecting vulnerable immigrants, this colonial policy, to be actually oppositional to um, like the liberalization of India's economy or, or the liberalization of India's um, government, rather. They saw liberalizing as a means of decreasing restrictions, but also that because this was happening in a venue in which Indian labor was moving through a global market, um, the regulation of labor was a way of protecting India's brand. So it became reimagined and recentered in new ways, despite, um, I mean, despite it not necessarily, the logic's not necessarily sitting evenly
2: yeah thank you so much for that because that ha, connects really really well with um the theme of this you know the indian brand indianness all of that that you explore in chapter two um because in chapter two you and three actually you explain how logics of neoliberal entrepreneurship in india are tied to local ideas of indianness and um on, and it's seeming entrepreneurial prowess Um, and you tell us that what's at stake here is the making of self-governing workers um, contra the vulnerable Indian trope, um, deemed fit fit to bear the brand of India's entrepreneurial capacities as migrants now overseas, um, or the making of brand ambassadors in um, Narendra Modi's terms. And so this melding together of an ideal neoliberal migrant figure with an Indian entrepreneurial brand image, you tell us, informs how migrants build and maintain influential networks with local recruitment agencies, government employees, and other crucial mediating actors um, who can either facilitate or hinder uh, your kind of ability to move. Um, So would you be able to tell us more about how these local networks um, grow, change, accumulate as migrants circulate between India and the Gulf and form these unequal relations of obligation and indebtedness with a wider range of transnational actors and, um, and how their activities overseas are connected to these to this idea of a kind of Indian entrepreneurial worker deemed fit to carry
1: a kind of brand that, that they represent. Great. So, yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, that's a really beautifully asked question. Um, so in Chapter 2, the this idea, I really focus on this idea of brand and India's brand image abroad um, and how migrants are seen, as you said, um, as brand ambassadors of India. Um, but, you know, migrants are interesting because, especially um, m- migrants who are going to work as laborers um, are are seen as um, potentially not being good representatives of India's brand. Um, And like, unlike perhaps another commodity, which is exported like mangoes, which are just should taste sweet. Um, You know, workers actually have to be taught how to be better workers. At least this is the logic that um, helps coordinate the activities of government workers and recruiting agents. Uh, So even though those groups could often be intention um, wanting different um regulations or different policies to act in different ways they both agree that um, indian workers or laborers should be um, good representatives of brand and so what happens is they there's um both regulations and policies that are put into place but often these can reproduce social inequalities and workers have to take on often usually take on debt to navigate the immigration regulations and to help find their jobs in the Gulf. Um, And so in chapter three, then I really moved to how migrants are using networks to get jobs and navigate inequalities that are, that become structured into the immigration process and the hiring process. And so for example, um, at a um, job site interview, you might a thousand men might show up, maybe more than a thousand for perhaps a hundred jobs. And so these are more, Um, people who will show up then could possibly even be interviewed by the um, oil company, um, human resources managers that are there. And so what I look at is how uh, migrants create these networks to um, navigate this finding a job. And one example um, is a man, Wafadar who I met um, and this is a pseudonym of course, but a person from uh, who's a Muslim from Bihar, which is a uh, social economically uh, has a lower average income than other Indian states. And so he really relied on um, what he called and what many migrants call um, influential networks uh, in order to find his job. And he understood his success at finding a job eventually was because of his ability to create these networks. And he created networks both with a, um, a man who worked as a local sub-agent who lived in this, this near where he, Wafadar, lived um, in Bihar. And of course, that sub-agent who I had the opportunity to talk to also had networks where he um, uh, would he would tell me stories about the police. When he would be trying to recruit workers, the police would come and he would eat and drink with them and they would be happy. And this is how he formed friendships with the police. And so Wafidar went with this um, local sub-agent to meet another sub-agent who was also from Bihar, but who was based in um, Mumbai or Bombay and who had worked in the Gulf for a long time, but now is working in Mumbai and helping find jobs for other helping people from Bihar find jobs. And he had, and this um, second sub-agent had relationships with, um, recruiting agency employees, like low level employees that he had met both through repeated work, but also because he would bring them gifts and they would, they'd have dinner together and they would eat and they would form these relationships. Um, and through this, um, through cultivating these relationships, people, um, we able to navigate some of the um, immigration regulations, but also find jobs. And then, of course, when workers migrate, they meet other migrants who then they help build networks um, with. And what I really liked about this idea of networks was that it um, mobilized understandings of like locality and community um, in that these relationships shape and delineate um, scales, which are really different from the conceptual approach that like centers the state, right? Because um, the term network destabilizes a focus on individuals or even like the state is a container, but rather examines how people form transnational communities and um, how we can understand multiple actors is actually shaping the process of labor migration. Absolutely.
2: Wow, there's a lot in there. Thank you. It's fascinating, um, but if you have to switch gears a little bit um, to enter the kind of uh, the world of chapter four, which is is just, just written so breathtakingly because and I was particularly fascinated by the conceptual interventions you make in chapter four that you've titled "Making Kin from gold, with Gold um, because it so beautifully teases out the semiotic materiality of gold, a gift substance that migrant men often purchase from the Gulf for their female relatives' dowries or wedding expenses in India, and you argue that gold as gift indexes performances of masculinity by these migrant men who return home periodically and acts as a connective kinship substance that ties migrant men back home uh, migrant men to their kin back home by reinforcing family obligations across transnational lines. And so I was wondering if if, you, if, if you'd mind talking us through the semiotics of gifting gold in more detail. Um, because in the book you mention um, the properties of gold that are kind of crucial to um, what makes it such a valuable moral and and kind of a kinship substance, what, what lends it value in terms of its malleability, its perceived stability and value against currency and um, purity and ideas of purities. And so, yeah, if, if the whole kind of kinship dynamics that you were observing and, and, um, and that you were talking about earlier across transnational lines, how, how gold as a gift substance, how it mediates that, um, it'd be very interesting to hear more about you on that.
1: Great. Well, thank you. Um, so perhaps, again, the best way to start is with the story. So uh, when I was in the United Arab Emirates conducting research, I met um, a young man named Joe Gash, who was working in a factory that built parts that's used when constructing certain um, oil rigs. But when we were um, speaking, he, he, like many, many of the um, men I, I worked with, their big concern um, was to their need to purchase gold for their sisters or their um, daughters' weddings. And this is um, largely because of the role of dowry or the gifts given from the wife's family to the groom's family at the time of marriage. Um, and what I find really important about this, and uh, like the energy he went to buying gold, so we would we went to those stalls and he would look at gold and he bought plain ropes of gold. Cause he wasn't sure what style he was best to buy for his sister, um, who wanted to marry, a, um, a person who works in I, the IT industry. And, um, he also wanted to buy gold for his mother, but his mother wanted him just to focus on buying gold for his sister. Cause it was going to allow for some upward mobility also in that, um, the sister's marriage. And I, I found that, um, Of course, Yogesh was not alone, but this was a very um, common story, but it points to how men and their families make sense of migration. It's not just out of an economic necessity, but rather how kinship practices act as a way to fulfill familial obligations, like how kinship practices um, in migrating, in particular in buying gold, are ways to fulfill familial obligations and for men to be good brothers and sons. Um, But... it also highlights the way there's gendered roles within the family and these how these gendered roles motivate migration and how migration in turn influences kinship practices by providing opportunities to reshape kinship ties and express gendered roles. So the gold that Indian migrants working in the Gulf buy becomes this kinship substance that maintains family relations and also uh, informs gendered labor. So in an understanding of how gold. Can become a kinship substance. I look at um, the contemporary practice of um, dowry in India. Fears that families have that their family members, um, fears that family ha- families have that their um, the son or the brother when, once they migrate will forget their families, right? Like will forget their obligations. But also the role of substances in Indian kinship, um, and all of this is situated within a larger um, historical pro- um, a pra- within a large historical context Um, and so the gift of gold and gold's position as a kinship substance shows that gender and kinship are defined understood and acted um within my the families of migrants but i find it really fascinating because it's like not the substances that we normally as anthropologists talk about when we're talking about kinship right which um, often are bodily substances like semen or breast milk um and it's not so we have this Gold is this substance that becomes transmogrified in some ways. Um, and it's, um, so gold through giving it to one sister becomes a kinship substance because, um, and whereas money might not become a kinship substance, is because of these semiotic materialities, which you point to. Um, and that's because like while food and kinship substances are often informed through relatedness or the daily proximity of people's lives, Um, the gold, particularly gold that's bought in the Gulf helps transcend this geographic distance. And it does so because um, its role is a gift and that it's a gift that connects people and a gift that's perceived as pure because it was bought in the Gulf because people would often tell me that um, gold bought in the Gulf is purer than gold would one buy in India. And despite that there's, one may argue the um, validity of that from another perspective, but that was the um, belief or the perspective that people told me. Um, but it also calls gold calls into questions. Um, we might make as anthropologists between, you know, substance and code or fixity and malleability. So gold is seen as durable in contrast to cash, which fluctuates on markets. And this was particularly the case because I was conducting my research, um, after the, uh, 2008, 2009, um, financial crisis. And so gold was actually seen as a, a object that maintained its value as opposed to things like, um, and this would be for wealthier families, but as opposed to something like um, stocks, which could just crash or disappear completely or currency, which fluctuates rapid, um, wildly. And the gold is, despite having this like durability and value in some ways, it's also seen as like malleable. So when Yogesh was shopping, he wanted to buy um plain chains of gold because he understood that those could be reshaped by the recipients. So here, gold's qualities is pure, stable, and malleable are mutually constituted with its role as a gift. And it's that that builds and maintains kinship relations as well as indexes one's gender.
2: Absolutely. And it's just fascinating to me to think through ties of blood that are that kind of have this um, semiotic equivalent in gold as kinship substance. Yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. And you mentioned that Yogesh, um, the um, the ethnographic figure that you mentioned, that he worked in an oil rig. Um, and this, I think, connects well with Chapter 5, which is titled The Rig and the Temple. And you pay close attention in this chapter to the metaphor that your interlocutors use to relate the mandir and the, or the Hindu temple in India to oil rigs in the Gulf. Um, that happened to share this aesthetic and infrastructural resemblance with the temples that these Hindu migrants remember frequent, frequenting back home. Since the temple and the oil rig serve as symbols of tradition and modernity of India and the Persian Gulf, respectively, you explore how migrants position themselves as agents of India's modernization. Brand ambassadors, to go back to um, that previous question, in and between these temporal articulations of nationhood, one looking to the past and the other to the future. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about um, where those migrants who don't fit within this framework and those non-Hindu migrants um, from religious minority backgrounds um, who are facing increasing um, surveillance and persecution within the Indian nation state, how these groups fit within um, these pursuits of development and modernity in India. Um, And what might the metaphor of RIG as temple Tell us about the logics of Hindutva, for instance, and the politics of minority exclusion outside the Indian nation state, because these are things that you do get into um, in detail in the book. And I was wondering if, you know, for our audience, if you might uh, mind um, explicating a bit further. Great.
1: So this um, reference to uh, Rega's temple emerged when I was beginning my fieldwork and I in the in Abu Dhabi, in the United Arab Emirates, and I was um, going to a a site outside of the city of Abu Dhabi where a oil rig was being constructed, and um, I was lost as I was driving, as I often was um, during field work. I feel like that was a common theme. But um so I was. I called um, the uh, manager, an Irish guy who is or um, helped who had invited me to the job site, and he he told me he hadn't, um, ever driven to the job site. So he gave, he gave the phone to one of the driver, um, and who was in, um, from India. And the driver said, well, you know, it just, I couldn't explain where I was. And he said, finally, just keep driving and you'll see and look for the the temple. And I, I I was confused because there were no temples in Abu Dhabi at the time. And I, um, but I, I just kept driving, and then after I'd gone through the security at the checkpoint and the, um, I met the driver, and he was like, "Look, it looks just like a temple," and it did. The architecturally, the aesthetics of both, as you said, um, mimic each other. And actually, over the course of my research, um, people often referred to this rig that they were building as their temple. And it took me. This was one of the. Um, things that took me a long time to digest and understand what to do with like I I didn't I kind of I wrote it down um but I didn't know where to what to do with it but then um I began to think about how it was a way of um making claims to how they as workers contribute to India's modernity um many of the people who work as in particular um laborers or um You know, doing things like carrying again, carrying heavy loads or building scaffolding, perhaps pulling wires through the um, metal frame of the rig. Um, Many people in these um, positions are either from are from minority communities, um, and many are Muslims who are um, uh, face structural and individualized discrimination in India, particularly in a um, political climate in which um, uh, Hindutva, a, a connection of India as being a Hindu land is um, increasingly, or is, is prevalent and being discussed. And often within this logic, um, Indian development, uh, for, within a Hindutva logic array, um, is seen as um, adopting middle and upper class and upper caste, um, practices as being the way towards India's modernity or development and and material wealth. So it's through, um, and this happens in education programs, both, um, for like Adivasis or um, indigenous Indians, as well as, um, uh, Dalits or, or, um, Muslims. And so through referencing the building of this temple and putting that in connection with, um, Oil's symbolic power, um, both as a sign of like modernity, but also of development in the future. Um, and the role of infrastructure in development. I, I saw these um, this uh, poetic reference as a way of um, inserting um, oneself or inserting people who are able from uh, communities that are often excluded from, who are often excluded and not considered central drivers of Indian development to be actually central to it. And this then not only allows for um, migrant workers to say that they are helping develop India, but also then to like present alternative visions of India's future, that visions that are not maybe necessarily built on never-ending, ever-expanding capitalist frontiers or cultivating solely an entrepreneurial self, but rather... um, bring in other values that they hold. And so um, I thought it was a powerful slippage or poetic that um, I really appreciated, uh, but it took me actually a while to process it fully, I, I guess, and that was one of the things, I guess, about writing. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, it is. It's a fascinating slippage indeed, and the way that you explicate it, Especially within, you know, the current political clim- climate of India, and to consider what you know Hindutva and um, minority politics, what that would look like even outside the, the boundaries of the nation state. Um, yeah, it's just a fascinating kind of approach and vantage point. Um, but you know, if we have to now move towards, you know, the, nearing the end um, of the podcast, unfortunately, but there's this last question about the book that I have for you, which deals with a question about labor migrants in the Gulf that I think um, has gotten a lot of international kind of attention. And it's kind of what, in many ways, migration to the Gulf, it's kind of associated with, you know, what you what you deal with in these last two chapters, which is the socioeconomic precarity and forms of discrimination that migrants, um, particularly from places like India, um, the, disc- the kinds of discrimination hierarchies are sub- they're subjected to, the things that they face as subjects situated un- unevenly within the racialized labor orders of the Gulf. And since the worst imaginable results of such inequity and precarity are oh, work-related fate, fate, fatalities in a way, um, since these are unavoidable, stark realities of oil production, you tell us that self-disciplining practices of safety develop among the migrants themselves. By displacing the responsibility for worker safety safety from the employer companies to the migrant employer companies to the migrant employees themselves, contemporary labor contracting turns the individual migrant worker into an ever-dispensable cog in a profit-accumulating Neoliberal machine that disavows responsibility for any individual worker, and it's and it's easy to see here how the kinds of precarity and discrimination that uh, we so often hear about, you know, that the things that migrant workers in the Gulf undergo. It's, it your chapters here really do tell us why that might be the case, why it's so prevalent and almost sadly inevitable. Would you be able to tell us more about how migrants grapple? with this kind of existential neoliberal precarity and how they make sense of the racialized labor hierarchies they find themselves in overseas. And is there anything that that you'd wanna say about how their class and caste standings vis-a-vis others in their workplaces, others in their um, broader transnational webs, how these class and caste standings might complicate questions of precarity and safety um because yeah there are many moving parts here and i'm not sure which parts you want to want you want to take on yeah
1: thank you um and it the um like the deaths or injuries of workers in the gulf is um uh sadly common i i guess and it's um and as you said the uh, the way in which contracts work, and the ways in which risk is um, displaced onto the most vulnerable, onto the most precarious, not only like through both like safety practices, but also the way labor laws are. Written. In some ways, this is a similar logic to the idea of um, the government saying a person size their, signs their contract of their own free will. So this, in some ways, moves the responsibility for caring for workers after the fact, to, from the government to a worker. Similarly. Um, you know, the implementation of safety practices then means that each worker must um, self-discipline themselves into a um, safe worker, and the risk, both legally through, as the way the laws are structured, but also like legally, I guess, um, becomes displaced onto the um, laborer. And this is um, even more heightened in a context where contract labor is increasing and contracting and subcontracting become increasingly common. Um, and so for all, I would say most of the uh, men with whom I worked who are working as laborers in the Gulf, they find their jobs to be, um, really hard. It's, they work long hours. They, they miss their families because they're gone for one to two years. Um, and this, um, looming, like these accidents where one can get hurt or be injured often feels, um, like their families, perhaps have like limited recourse to like ask for financial remuneration or other forms of support either from the companies that they worked for or from the um, uh, the Indian state. And one of the things that I found so powerful that workers did do to navigate this was form um, communities that were by created by returned migrants. Um, and often um, these communities were local based. But not necessarily um, restricted to one caste or class, but really around the logic in a certain place of the um, return migrants and trying to put pressure on local government officials to do more for migrants or their families. Um, so migrants who had been injured or families who lost a family member in the Gulf, as well as to um, uh, you like blacklist certain companies who hadn't treated workers fairly. And they did this through um, organizing social media campaigns and other. Um, and demonstrations that they were really calling on the government to play a larger role in protecting workers. And so here this idea of networks not only subverts maybe a model that we might have of how migration works, but also works to um, uh, argue for um, new states' obligations. Um, and I, I think that this network and the strength of it is built both through the locality, but also because it's being built through circulation and the communities and relationships that are built through circulation, um, create certain forms of responsibility. And in here, um, I think ghost stories also become like important tools that workers use. So I was speaking with, a um, my, a, a, a man who was working at the oil reconstruction site and it was, and he was telling me a story about when he was a little boy, he, um, lived with his grandmother because his, um, parent, his parents had died when he was young and he, um, he was sleeping one night and he heard, um, a noise outside of the house and his dog was barking and he was really concerned about this um, noise. And so in the morning he asked his grandmother about it and she, she said, Oh, it must've been the person who comes and shops our wood because he had died the day before, but I had not let up, left any food or money out for him. And he was telling me this story, um, after I was telling them about having gone to an abandoned camp or a camp where, um, a group of workers had been left, uh, their employer had fled the country. They hadn't been paid for the work that they'd done. And they, these abandoned workers were largely, um, uh, like dependent upon workers in other camps to help provide them with food and water. And they, um, were in really poor economic circumstances, poor circumstances. And they were also dependent upon, um, volunteers, which were mostly middle and upper class um, people from South Asia who were working in the United Arab Emirates to provide um, food and um, some toiletries for them. And he was reflecting on that. And he was like, well, you see, our obligations continue, even if a contract ends or even past death, you know, and he his argument was his grandmother had um, continued to put like after that night, his grandmother continued to put. Food and money out, like a little bit of food out for this, um, um, the person who had chopped her wood. And that was her way of like fulfilling that obligation and um, pacified that. And I thought that was such a powerful story um, in helping us rethink what our obligations are to each other and how those can be framed. Um, and that in conjunction with these networks of, act, um, or these communities of activists that are formed through um, people migrating to the Gulf and coming back. Um, provide ways or tools that workers use to um, try to mitigate or navigate some of this risk that becomes displaced on them, either um, to varying levels of success.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And as a follow-up question, were there, um, were these activists and even the support networks that emerged for these abandoned workers, um, were they in any ways kind of um, cut across like what in class terms, in caste terms, you know, where you have the successful um, Indian middle-class or upper middle-class works coming up to support um, or finance the short-term precarity um, of those lower down? Did you, were these kinds of inter-class solidarity something that emerged organically?
1: I I think definitely in regards to like, for example, help with, um, the, like this abandoned camp that, um, uh, happens still, it was increasingly common after the financial crisis of 2008 and nine, when people, um, companies were going out of business and owners were fleeing because they were concerned that they uh, would be sent to debtor's prison. And so, um, they would, workers would be left and if they, you know, a plane ticket home is really expensive, especially if you haven't been paid for the work that you're doing in your um, And so workers were just stuck in the Gulf and um, voluntary organization. People would organize on places like Facebook or um, other social media. Um, Somebody, one woman in particular had met um, some men who were looking for food and asked them what they were doing and heard about being abandoned. And so she organized a fundraiser where people donated money, but also went regularly to the camps to like provide food. And this is, and these organizations continuing today. So these ways in which um, middle and upper class cast um, individuals are very much um, providing some of the same services like that we would probably maybe hope the state would in other contexts, you know, in helping to both um, provide food and water, but also eventually raise enough money to buy plane tickets so that those workers could return to India um, and Bangladesh and Pakistan because it was uh, multiple places. But um, it. So there's definitely ways in which these communities are formed, although there is, um, I think, particularly around class, there's some unevenness that continues in um, their formation.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrea, for
1: the generative
2: answers and for, um, for the opportunity today to engage with your work. And before we wrap up today's interview, just have one final question for you, and that's about any projects and the works things that you're working on currently that you that you would mind sharing a bit with
1: us yeah thank you um i'm currently finishing my second book which is called producing labor Hi- hierarchies a history of oil in the arabian sea and i think that'll be out in 2023 with stanford university press So, um and that book or looks at the history of labor and oil production in the Gulf in the Arabian Peninsula, and looks at the relationships among governments, oil companies and mobile workforces or, or migrant work. And I, what I'm interested in is looking at working conditions, hiring practices and worker action like strikes from the 1930s to the 1970s, which is a period that includes the end of formal British imperialism in the Gulf and South Asia, as well as the development of new state governments in both of those areas. And it, I hope ultimately what the book does is considers the lines between citizens and non-citizens were drawn and reinforced, and demonstrates that shifting de- definitions of terms like human rights, national security, and race um, ultimately led to the evacuation of politics from the oil fields and the sem- like, the cementing of racialized labor hierarchies in the Gulf. Um, I'm also, as I'm finishing that I'm, um, I've just begun a new project, which is a comparative project on um, green, the building of green energy infrastructure um, in India, Kuwait, in the United States. Um, and there I look at how religious beliefs and cultural perspectives on what constitutes like the environment, debates regarding one's ethical responsibility to the environment, um, and the st- stories we tell ourselves about the future, how those all impact like what green energy projects are built and how they're engaged with by the communities in which they're built. So those are my two current projects. Those are
2: fascinating. So, so excited to follow your work. And, um, and yeah, just, it's fascinating. Thank you so much for your time, for speaking with us, for speaking with me today. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And, Thank you um, to everyone for listening in to today's episode in which we explored uh, Professor Andrea Wright's book, Between Dreams and Ghosts, Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil, published by Stanford University Press in November 2021. This is your host, Irene Pramod, and stay tuned for the next episode on new books on anthropology. Thank you.